As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Ask NT Wright Anything podcast. Hello, welcome back to the show. I'm Justin Briley, director of Premier Unbelievable, with the show brought to you in partnership with SBCK and NT Wright Online, where you get to ask the questions. And today we're asking, should we cancel Luther and Calvin? You have questions including, should we value the theology of Luther and Calvin, given the anti-Semitism and killing they both endorsed? How do I convince my Lutheran friend that not all works are bad? And is it a problem that the Lutheran baptismal rite uses the disputed ending of Mark? So Tom effectively answering questions on the influence of the reformers, especially Luther, today. Uh, Just a quick shout out to JMOP, who left this review for the podcast, saying, I was one of the only 12-year-olds who loved attending confirmation classes each week. I soaked up the details of the liturgical calendar, the meanings behind the rituals, and learning the fundamentals of being an Episcopalian. And then I got distracted in college, bouncing in and out of my faith walk for a few decades, but never losing my core beliefs. Well, a year ago, God tugged at my heart. Actually, he came hollering at me through what C.S. Lewis calls God's megaphone. So I began searching. That's when I found this podcast and the Anglican Catholic Church. Bishop Wright is so enlightening. His wisdom, insight and gracious explanations have been instrumental in getting me excited again about my faith and building a closer relationship with God. The podcast is like a primer on the tenets of Christianity. Every week, I'm back in class devouring information on my faith. Thank you for being a trusted and honest resource in my growth. Oh, God bless you. I'm so glad to hear that that's been your journey, Jay Moppen. If you're listening and you want to leave us a rating and a review, it does help others to discover the show. You can do that wherever you're listening from on podcast. Do check out as well our website, premierunbelievable.com, for more great podcasts from Premier Unbelievable. The link is with today's show. Well, we're coming back to a subject that we've addressed in one form or another a number of times over the last few years that we've been running this podcast, Tom, uh, specifically the Reformation. Luther and Calvin are kind of loosely the, the subjects of the questions that we've, we've got before us today. Um, let's start with Phil Bray in Sydney, Australia, who, who's asking, should we cancel Luther and Calvin? Um, now, I don't know whether this is true the way Phil begins begins his question, but you, you can comment on this. I know Tom Wright holds Calvin in very high regard. My questions are because I'm struggling to read Calvin and Luther in a positive light since discovering some of their quite despicable actions. Calvin says, 
that it is just to put heretics to death, for instance. And speaking about Servetus, he says he won't allow him to leave alive. Luther, of course, has been quite explicit in his hatred of Jews and suggested burning down their houses and schools, killing rabbis. Now, Calvin and Luther didn't seem to love their enemies, quite the opposite. And it doesn't seem to me as though they were bearing good fruit. Their actions weren't defined by love, joy, patience and kindness. So I struggle to accept that someone can have good theology while not bearing good fruit or at least slowly becoming more Christ-like. And they don't seem to have repented from this kind of behaviour or speech later in their lives. Um, so is it possible to separate fruit from theology uh, or should we see bad fruit and be wary of bad theology? Um, so uh, first of all, uh, you know, uh, you perhaps can speak for yourself, Thomas, that to, to where you place uh, Calvin and Luther in, in terms of their, their theological lights. But obviously, uh, Phil here has a real problem with the fact that some of their, their writings and what we know of their actions to us seem very unchristlike, and therefore should that make us question their theology as well? Yeah, th these are huge questions. And uh, alas, every generation of Christian leaders and teachers has had its own particular blind spots and problems and and really the question ought to bounce back onto us what are our blind spots mm. what are what are the things which in two or three hundred years if there are still two or three hundred years of history left ahead of us um, what are the things which our heirs and successors are going to look back and say those guys in the early 21st century um, they didn't realize that they were mm. polluting the planet with their cars or actually they did realize it but they did nothing about it and so on and so on you know there are all sorts of things which which we currently tolerate uh, foolishnesses and, and and follies which we've grown up with and take for granted which another generation might well see as as seriously problematic um it's only just recently that most Christians, have, uh, that I know anyway, have given up smoking, for instance. Um, and, and those sort of great sea changes socially correspond to great sea changes which were happening in the 16th century, um, when, of course, most people, most Christian leaders in the 16th century took it for granted that heresy um, on key issues of the faith was such a serious problem that if there were people who were genuine heretics, then they could not be allowed to live. And and should be put to death in a way which would um, encourage others to take uh, lessons from that. I mean, uh, I live here in the middle of Oxford. A few hundred yards down the street from where I'm sitting is the memorial to Cranmer, Ridley and Latimer, who were burnt at the stake in the 1550s. Um, so th th these were these were terrible times. And we look back and say, how could they possibly have done that out of misplaced zeal and loyalty to God and the gospel? What was that about? And the answer was, from their point of view, this was about trying desperately to keep the church and society pure from the devastating, corrupting influence, as they saw it, of heretical teaching, which would destroy the fabric of the faith and of society. Now, we would probably say, should say, that they were wrong in making that assumption, but that's where they were. And for me, it doesn't vitiate all of their teaching. It merely uh, means that they, like all the rest of us, um, get something seriously wrong. Luther himself developed the theology of simul justus et peccator at the same time righteous and a sinner. Luther knew perfectly well that he was still a sinner even though in Christ and by faith God had declared him righteous. And I think uh, uh, on the larger picture as well, we have to say that in every generation, we, the, the people who invoke God in Christ, including myself, we are doing the right thing by invoking God in Christ in the power of the Spirit. But that doesn't mean that our lives and our habits and our larger policies are free from blame. And as I say, 
and many, many issues which subsequent generations will look back at. When it comes to specific theological issues, it does seem to me that if you start where Luther and Calvin started, which was with the Roman Catholic theology of the late 15th and early 16th century, then if you look and see how that was playing out in terms of, well, for Luther, the sale of indulgences and that sort of thing, then they were forced to give fresh answers to those medieval questions. And they did the right thing, which was to go back to the original sources of Scripture, to, to retranslate or reinterpret the Greek and Hebrew of the New and Old Testaments, and to say in the light of that, what are we finding out? The problem from my point of view is that they were giving, trying to give biblical answers to late medieval questions, and from where I sit, both of them, Luther and Calvin, were largely unaware of the subtle different nuances of the actual first century questions that were at the heart of Scripture. And so I applaud their method, that is, go back to the original sources and learn fresh wisdom. They were concerned to critique medieval abuses. That didn't mean they had no abuses of their own. If I have to choose between Luther and Calvin, I will choose Calvin, but um, for, for all sorts of reasons, for his positive view of the Old Testament and of the law, etc. Whereas Luther, who had this big law gospel antithesis, was always in danger of saying, mm. and certainly some of his followers have said, so we don't really need the Old Testament, don't really need the law. It's kind of a dangerous and dark thing. Whereas Calvin was much more positive. But in both cases, I want to say, I honour their method. Let's read scripture in the original. Let's do our best to find out what it originally meant. And that will relativise the questions as well as give us a new set of answers for the questions which we are facing in our own day. Mm. So, so ultimately, we can go to these characters from the past and celebrate what we can see that's good in their theology without idolizing them or their actions because obviously they were as human as anyone and and obviously you know absolutely yes, and, it, and they themselves yeah. i think they themselves would have would have insisted on that yeah hope that's helped phil um got another question about um well more the lutheran church than luther himself here from christine in los angeles who says i'm struggling with a dear friend who is a lifelong lutheran now, I attend a non-denominational church and we frequently discuss the importance of works in the life of the believer, not as a means of attaining salvation, but as the natural byproduct of a relationship with Christ. But my friend, every time he hears any words related to works or what we must do as believers or even making a choice to be a Christian, feels that we're engaging in works-based righteousness. I've tried for years to understand Lutheranism and how I better explain to him that we believe in salvation by grace through faith, just as he does, but to no avail. Any advice in understanding Lutheranism or advice for achieving a state of I understand you, disagree with you, but still love you place would be appreciated. Now, I, it may be that this this Christine's friend here doesn't represent all Lutherans by any stretch of the imagination uh, in the way they obviously hold this very dogmatically view of, of, of this. But and any advice, at least for this this particular friendship and, and the way this person seems to re regard yeah. any thought of works or it, it, making choices and so on? It is a problem, and it's not only within Lutheranism, but also within some parts of American Reformed Christianity. I think of, of say, John Piper, um, for whom any suggestion that there's anything that we now have to do um, is, oh, that's in danger of you think you're contributing to your salvation, as though, well, God does his bit and now we have to do ours. The problem with all of that is uh, both exegetical and theological. Exegetical in that it's often rooted in a reading of Romans 1, 2, 3, and 4, 
as the Romans road, we sinned, God sent Jesus, we believe, that's it, we're okay. Um, uh, actually, Romans is much more subtle than that. And the argument of Romans runs on, certainly to chapter 8, and actually then throughout the whole of the rest of the letter. You need then theologically a strong injection of the work of the Holy Spirit. And in the New Testament, again and again, justification by faith, which is, of course, a thoroughly biblical doctrine, has the work of the Holy Spirit in the gospel to bring people to faith, but then also through that process to transform their character, to make them into um, uh, God-reflecting humans as they are meant to be. So the, the, the summary of it all would come in Ephesians 2 verses 8, 9, and 10. By grace you are saved through faith, not of yourselves it's God's gift, not of, you know, not of yourselves lest anyone should boast. And then we are God's workmanship, um, the Greek word is poema. We are God's poem, God's poetry, created in Messiah Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand for us to walk in. So that all fits together. And in fact, Ephesians is a wonderful summary of Paul's teaching, um, which is why, sadly, in some liberal Protestant circles, Ephesians has been rather marginalized because people prefer their reading of, say, Romans 1 to 4 and find that Ephesians is muddying the waters a bit. That's because they haven't really understood how Romans itself works, I would say. So, the other thing to say is that the phrase good works in the New Testament regularly does not refer to the moral works that we do to show that we're behaving properly. It refers very often to the works that Jewish people would do to show that they were um, God's faithful Torah observant uh, followers, um, and particularly the works which marked out Jews from their pagan neighbours, like the keeping of the Sabbath, the food laws, and circumcision. Very interestingly, recent scholarship on the second century fathers, the people who are reading Paul two generations later, indicates that they all understood Paul in that way. It's only later in the third and fourth centuries, particularly with Augustine, that the idea of works uh, got detached from the Jewish original, these are the things we do because we're God's people, and became um, uh, me trying to be good in order to impress God. And Augustine is very much against that because that's what he thought Pelagius mm. was doing. Mm. So we've been messed up by those controversies into false readings of the New Testament. But the other thing that good works meant in the first century was quite different entirely, and that is if somebody in the Christian community finds that they have some spare cash, some resources which they can deploy, they should be doing good works in the community. If there's poor, if there are poor people whose homes need rebuilding, or if there's a hospital needs building or something, or something else like that, these are things that people can do which are good works, which show to the wider community that we Jesus followers care about the health and well-being of that whole community. And, and the letter to Titus, interestingly, is quite emphatic about this, to people to be zealous for good works, not in order to keep moral rules to show God that they're on his side, but in order to demonstrate to the wider community that we care about health, about education, about poverty, etc. So um, we have to separate ourselves from the controversies which run from Augustine to Luther and on into our own day and learn to think more with the mind of the first century in order to be able to articulate things afresh for our own day.
Thank you very much. I hope that's helped, Christine, uh, as you go into that conversation again with your, your Lutheran friend. Finally, um, another question around the Lutheran church tradition from Paul in New Jersey, who says, when my first child was baptized in the Lutheran church, the pastor said, in the last chapter of Mark, our Lord promises, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Well, I was slightly taken aback that for the ceremony of baptism, the church would include the longer ending of Mark using words that Jesus may not have said. I agree with you, Tom Wright, believe that the longer ending isn't part of the original text, though I do disagree that the original was lost. Sorry, Tom, says, says Paul. Um, I recently heard a podcast where it was said that it's difficult for certain Lutherans to reject the longer ending of Mark because Luther has in his confessions, catechisms and other writings. I find it hard to believe that a set of beliefs or confessions hinge on whether the longer ending is authentic or not. Could that saying of Jesus possibly go back to him? I was just wondering what Tom's thoughts are on it. OK, so, yes, obviously, uh, in certain formulations of, of these Lutheran um, promises and so on, they do use these words that come from this disputed ending of Mark and so on. Um, what, what's your thoughts, Tom, on, on the, the validity of using words from that and whether they do or don't go back to Jesus? And, and obviously, Paul feels this is you know, a bit of a problem. Yes, it's it's interesting. I've not run into this particular variety of question before, um, because, of course, in the last 200 years, virtually every saying attributed to Jesus in the four Gospels has been doubted by some critic somewhere. And to be honest, quite a lot of them within uh, Lutheran scholarship, because that has been the dominant form of New Testament scholarship for much of the uh, 19th and, and certainly early 20th century. Um, so that uh, I, I think it, it's, it's only one phenomenon among many to say, ah, well, the Lutheran confession has that bit from Mark 16. I, I do agree that that um, that passage, the longer ending of Mark, so-called, is almost certainly secondary. That doesn't mean that it doesn't contain any words of Jesus. And it's perfectly possible for somebody else to have remembered through oral tradition, which was very vibrant in the first century, things that Jesus said, which subsequent to Mark's finishing of the gospel and its truncation or not, um, somebody will have put that together. And after all, that statement about believing and being baptized goes very closely with what Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, that except somebody is born again of water and the Spirit, and all the, um, uh, all the emphasis in John 3 on faith, that God so loved the world, dot, 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 so that all who believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. So putting John 3 together, how are you going to summarize that? Well, somebody might well say, according to Jesus, those who believe and are baptized will be saved. Um, so it's, it's not too far away from things which are there in the text anyway. And of course, different people will say, well, we can't be sure Jesus said this or sure Jesus said that. But there is a convergence around that of baptism bringing people into the visible fellowship of the people of God and the faith which says Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead, which is the baptismal confession. These are the things which mark out those who are um, being born again and those who are already saved and will be saved. So, so we're not too far away there. I think then the problem comes with, and we said this in a much earlier podcast, at what point do the human traditions that have developed within different denominations become so strong that they, as it were, trump 
um, a, a straight reading of Scripture so that we say, well, we can't do anything about this because that's what our tradition says. And of course, we meet that question in many, many forms. Um, and uh, I think we basically mature 21st century Christians ought to be able to navigate that without too many problems or bumps in the road. Um, that what we're believing is the central realities of the faith, not necessarily the particular formulations which people three or four hundred years ago may have um, put together using words and texts. Um, after all, the, the great confessions of faith, the Lutheran confessions, the Augsburg confession, the Westminster confession, etc., etc., used many uh, bits of non-scriptural language um, and many non-scriptural terms, and sometimes used scriptural terms in subtly different ways. And it's the part of a wise Christianity always to say, let's go back check this out, see what was going on there, because we're committed to the thing itself, not to the temporary and time-bound expressions of it. And that is not, by the way, um, a recipe for theological um, uh, relativism, just saying, oh, well, it doesn't matter, it all changes. The central stuff jolly well does not change. The words that subsequent generations have used to describe the central matter have been flexible and have come from Latin into German into English, whatever, and we always need to go back and check them out, which is why I hope people like me, biblical scholars, still have a bit of a job to do. Mm. I mean, and I just I suppose want to, to just also address something that seems implicit in the question here from Paul, which is that he might have got the impression that because you, you know, have an opinion on whether that longer ending of Mark, you know, was original to Mark or not, um, that you therefore see it as somehow secondary or we shouldn't really trust it um, uh, or it's non-authoritative in the way that maybe other parts of Scripture are. I mean, how how do you actually view that? I mean, what, what do you say to, to people who kind of think, oh, well, maybe we should sort of dismiss or not think about this this bit of mark in the same way that we do other parts <laughs> yes um it, it is it is tricky because the longer ending is is rather awkward it has that bit about handling snakes which some christian traditions have taken um over seriously as though handling snakes was the test of faith um and uh, most churches have not actually worried too much about that um but i think again our problems sometimes come from an over brittle understanding of inspiration and authority of scripture that 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 Scripture, um, which I, you know, I, my view throughout my life has been that Scripture is the book that God has given us, but that doesn't mean that there aren't places in Scripture which are really rather puzzling in terms of their textual history, and, and not only the longer ending of Mark, though that's perhaps the most notorious one, but other places where there's a verse which has crept in in some manuscripts mm. or been dropped out in other manuscripts, and it always makes sense to say, let's actually probe back and see if we can figure out what was going on here. Um, but that doesn't mean that things that came in later, which I think the longer ending of Mark did, have nothing to teach us, just as you know, the, the the writings say of Clement of Rome, um, the, the the letters of Clement, or uh, the so-called Epistle of Barnabas, or um, the works of Justin Martyr in the mid-second century, and we can't say because these aren't in the Bible, we've got nothing to learn from them. We have an enormous amount to learn from them. These are our ancestors in the faith. They were reading Scripture, and if. Um, in their traditions, they added a bit here and there. We can still learn from that, even if we are cautious about saying Scripture teaches and then quoting it. So I think mm. we need to acquire 
a more mature flexibility, not to say we don't really believe in the authority of scripture, because I certainly do, but to say uh, there are shadows around the edge of the canon, if you like. Um, there have been debates about which books mm. as a whole belong in the canon, the Wisdom of Solomon, for instance. Mm. Um, mm. Uh, and, and that doesn't stop us believing that the basic text of scripture is the book that God wanted us to have. Yeah. Very helpful. Thank you very much, Tom. And thanks for all these questions on uh, the Lutheran tradition and Calvin and so on that have come in uh, for this edition of the programme. Um, and uh, we look forward to catching up with you again soon, Tom. But for now, thanks so much for once again being my guest on today's show. Thank you very much. Good to be with you as always. Well, thank you for being with us. Don't forget, you can help us to bring more content like this, helping skeptics to explore faith and Christians to understand, defend and share their faith with confidence. If you'd like to support us in doing that, you can do so from our website at premierunbelievable.com, where you can find out much more about this show and register for all our resources. Best wishes. See you next time.